what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The word of the Lord. And at this time, the bridge, which is a group of 6th through 8th graders, may be dismissed. Thank you for reading that. Uh, that passage speaks very clearly about the need to pay attention to what we've been hearing, uh, pay attention to the words that have been presented to us. And that is from the writer of Hebrews. We are shifting away from Mark, where we've been for quite a while, the gospel, and are moving into a four-week series that looks at uh, the book of Hebrews. And so into this place, we see the writer at the beginning of chapter 2 being very clear about paying attention to what we've heard. It's very easy to simply listen and do nothing or have it go in one ear and out the other. And the writer is saying, um, these words are important. This book of Hebrews, we really don't know who wrote it. Uh, there are a lot of guesses, but we're not too sure of the authorship of this book which has interesting implications. One of the pieces that is important for those centuries ago who were forming our sacred literature and drawing together on the pieces of literature that were available, um, this was one of them, but because the authorship was uncertain, went for quite some time as to whether or not it would be included as part of our sacred literature, what we sometimes refer to as the canon of Scripture. It's not necessarily written by any person that we know of having written anything else, there were some who wanted to claim that Paul wrote it so that it would be certain to get into our Bible. But the early church sought, thought so highly of what this book says that there was this strong movement that it be included because of the significance of what is written as part of its content. We're not exactly sure when it was written or even the group to whom it was written. We know from one small verse that there is some connection to the Christians in Italy, but that's not a whole lot to go on. In terms of its timing, it writes some things in its context about um, persecution or implications concerning persecution. You might remember when we were in the Old Testament talking about some of the real key historical events that help us to put the writings of the Old Testament in context. That Israel splits up into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The Assyrians come down from the north and they take and destroy the northern kingdom. And they're the lost tribes. A number of years later from the east, the Babylonians come and take over and take into captivity the southern kingdom. And then under King Cyrus, the Persian, they are allowed to go back to their homeland, to Jerusalem, and to begin to rebuild their temple. Those are real key events because many of the writings of the prophets and even some of the other books arise out of that time 
as an attempt to help the people work through what it means to be in captivity, to be in exile, to be returning, and how we conduct ourselves in the midst of such circumstances. The New Testament is similar. There are some key events that take place that cause a number of writers to write down very important things about the community of faith. And once again, it ties into persecution. Several decades after Jesus has died and resurrected, we have Nero in power, and Nero unleashes a persecution against the Christian church that made it very difficult for people to hang on to their faith, and many were returning to their roots tempted to let go of everything that they had been taught about Christ and returning to their faith that was exclusive of Christ because Judaism was allowed, it was permitted under that Roman rule, but Christianity became a group that was targeted for persecution. And so some of the writers spoke into those times emphasizing the importance of what Christ had said, what Christ had taught, and what Christ had done. It's into this setting that we believe Hebrews is written to a group of people that are facing that kind of persecution. Hebrews is a very poetic book, beautiful in its form. It is filled with images and symbols that probably meant a lot more to the people, the audience at the time it was written than maybe to us. But it's difficult to read it without feeling that a number of those symbols are relevant to who we are and our practices. It's not very easy to kind of impose an outline on Hebrews, but I want to try and just give a couple of pieces of framework so maybe you can kind of place portions of Hebrews into this framework. The writer spends a good portion of this book talking about the treasure that Christ is. What an incredible gift has been given to us in Jesus Christ. The first three and a half chapters up until the middle of chapter four speaks about the supremacy or superiority of Christ simply as a person. An amazing human. A recognition of what an incredible gift it was to have Christ among us. From the second half of chapter 4 until the first half of chapter 10, we hear about the supremacy or superiority of Christ as the priest. In the order of Melchizedek. Now you have to understand that the reason this is important to the writer is that Jesus Christ as priest didn't fit the mold of what it meant to be a priest because Jesus was not of the Levite tradition. And only a priest, a priest had to come from the Levite tradition. Well, the writer of Hebrews points out that in the Old Testament, Melchizedek was a priest. And there's no indication that Melchizedek was part of the 
Levite line of people. And so the Hebrew writer is talking about Jesus being the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Kind of a mystical character from the Old Testament, but sets forth a beautiful argument for the role of priest for us. Then the last portion of Hebrews, from the second half of chapter 10 through the end, talks about what we now do as a result of having had Christ among us and what Christ has done on our behalf. So it speaks about having access to God as one of the important outcomes of Christ. And then it moves into chapter 11 talking about the heroes of the faith. And then it talks about how we might live out our faith. And then it comes to chapter 13, and it moves us toward a conclusion that draws us into very practical living for us and a closing greeting or farewell at the end of chapter 13. So I, I want to shift for just a second because this book speaks so deeply and profoundly about religion in general, our faith in particular. I'm intrigued by the approach that it takes. Barclay, who's a commentator, suggests that there are four approaches people take toward religion, four reasons for religion. And writers sometimes appeal to these different approaches. The one is that religion is so that we might have an inward or heart fellowship with our Creator, with God. It's very difficult to not pick that up when you read Paul's writings. Paul over and over again talks about having a heart relationship with our Creator. He speaks about Jesus having returned to the Father so that the Holy Spirit might be sent and that Holy Spirit might not only live with you but might live in you. So religion becomes this way by which we might have heart fellowship with our Creator. There are others who focus a bit more on the intellectual pursuit of God, that, that seek God with my whole mind. I try and understand God and what it might mean for God to be intimately involved in God's creation. And so there is this way by which I not only examine myself, but I examine my understanding of God and what that might say about my journey. He's certainly not a um, scripture writer, but Plato was the one who said, a life that is unexamined is a life that's not worth living. It is this statement that speaks about reflection intellectually on our journey that moves us further toward God. Though I think the gospel writer John is one who deeply knows the inward relationship with the creator of all, John also is incredibly intellectual and lays out intricate arguments in the pursuit of understanding God. There's a third approach, and that is that religion provides this standard or benchmark of what behavior ought to look like and empowers us to actually live up to that benchmark. Peter and James use this language over and over again, that a follower of Christ ought to exhibit certain types of behaviors. 
And those behaviors are empowered by our pursuit religiously in our faith in following Christ. Barclay contends that Hebrews actually takes a fourth approach. And this fourth approach is to say that our faith, our religion, addresses how we access God. What does it mean to access God? Well, in the middle of chapter 10, after building this beautiful argument and story of Jesus as this supreme person and supreme priest, in one of the most beautiful passages of all of Scripture, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, Since we have the confidence to enter into the most holy place through the blood of Jesus, a new and living way opened up to us through the curtain, and that curtain being the body of Christ. And since we have such a great high priest that stands over the church of God, let us draw close to God with a sincere heart in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies bathed in pure water. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for the one who promised is faithful. And let us spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are accustomed to doing, but instead, let's encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day, the day of our Lord, approaching. This paragraph is a paragraph about access to God. The ability to step into God's presence. You have to understand the significance for this writer because for my understanding, for the Jewish people, access to God is a terrifying thing. The notion that nobody sees the face of God and lives. That to move into the Holy of Holies risks death. And the chief priest, the priest who had the privilege of doing it, did it once a year. And that with great trepidation. What does it mean to step in the presence of a holy God, one who is completely righteous in my unrighteousness, one who is completely holy and pure in my impurity? Those two things don't come together. And so the notion that what Christ did gives me access to step into the holy of holies, the holiest place, by what Christ has done, Christ is not only the priest, but Christ is also the sacrifice. The supreme priest, the perfect sacrifice that gives me access. My question is, what does access look like? What does it mean? Access to God. That almost seems beyond my understanding as to what that might look like. Well, I'd like to give you a couple examples that are not 
religious in nature, just to kind of set the stage for this. The, the first is this. Let's imagine for a moment that you're a scientist and you have in front of you not just a periodic table, but you have a collection of all of the elements that we have in our known understanding of creation. They're just at your table and you can concoct anything you want, like a mad scientist who got the little scientific kit as a 12-year-old and conjured up whatever you want and made your little sister drink it. That was my wife's experience, but nevertheless, it, all the array, and so you grab a dose of nitrogen and you put it into whatever container you have, and, and a good chunk of oxygen and drop that in there, and, and certainly some hydrogen needs to be added to this mix, and you throw in some calcium and some carbon, some phosphorus, some potassium, and little trace elements of some other things, and you start stirring this up, and my understanding is that if you mix this just right, it will create something that attracts more of the same kind of that stuff and it actually grows. Or you could experience that same thing by holding little Grady in your arms because those elements are exactly what make up you. So it's one thing to hear all the chemical components that comprise that. It's very different to have the very practical experience of holding a baby, of touching the skin, of smelling the feet, of watching the curl on the lips. Now what's behind it, that's pretty beautiful as well, but it feels incredibly incomplete. Maybe another example. If you take a piece of nylon fabric, a nice large piece of nylon fabric, and, and you cause it to bow in a particular way, kind of hold it so that it's rigid on some sides, and you cause it to bow in a particular way, if the wind moves across the outside of that bow, of that nylon fabric, it'll travel at a slightly faster speed than wind that goes on the inside of that nylon fabric. And when that occurs, what happens at the front end of that fabric is a vacuum is created, and this piece of nylon fabric and whatever it is attached to gets drawn into that vacuum. That vacuum then continues and perpetuates itself. If whatever this is attached to is in the water and there is something that projects deep down into the water that causes a particular drag coefficient that hinders lateral movement, then there is this glorious experience of moving forward that is sometimes referred to as sailing. Or I could just take you out there and stick you on the bow of the boat and let the waves splash against the sides of the boat and feel the sun in the back of your neck and the wind passing across your face. You might be at the helm and feel the power of the wind as you try and navigate in this craft. Now all of the math and the science behind it, that's beautiful. But there's something where you can attach it to an experience, to something that brings meaning to what takes place. Okay, one last example, one last one. Hopefully this one will stick with you, because I'm not sure the others will. The study of 
philematology tells us that there are particular moments when your brain releases just a certain amount of uh, dopamine and serotonin. There are a number of events that can cause this, but one in particular causes just enough to be released. Dopamine kind of enlivens a portion of the brain that sometimes ties into um, addiction, but also ties into euphoria. There's this great feeling that happens when dopamine is released. Serotonin um, kind of ties into um, uh, sometimes the areas of the brain where we're a little more obsessive or compulsive about something, but a lighter amount of it gives us a sense of great anticipation. Those two get released, and sometimes then that triggers an increase as well in oxytocin, which ties into a decrease in another hormone that enlivens a sense of affection and a sense of attachment. That's what's happening when you kiss someone you love. Now, I don't know if all of those things are going through your head in that moment, thinking, boy, I sure hope the oxytocin is doing just the right thing at just the right moment, and I, I don't know about the serotonin, but the dopamine's there for sure, because I can sense that happening. Oh, I hope that doesn't get out of control. I, don't, I doubt that's going through your head. But when you attach the experience to something that's tangible, a person, a relationship, another, all of a sudden it gives a powerful context, a powerful meaning to what it is that's taken place. So one of the lectionary readings this morning was the question that was asked of Jesus about the greatest commandments. So let me describe one more, the love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I could expand on that as I have in the past with commandments that say, um, have no idols, uh, no other gods before Yahweh. Um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. The second commandment is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I could expand on that, say, don't commit murder or adultery. Um, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. No coveting, no stealing. And then I could begin to go through the Levitical Code and read all of the ways in which um, we are supposed to be obedient to certain commandments and then begin to describe the sacrificial system and the necessity for the sacrificial system. Or I could say, let me introduce you to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the fulfillment of all of the prophets. Let me introduce you to Jesus. This is, for us, what the Hebrew writer is trying to communicate behind all of the math equations, behind all of the law, behind of all the chemistry and the biology, behind all of the prophets. Let me introduce you to Jesus. If you will begin to attach your thoughts of religion and faith and living out of your faith to this relationship, you'll have a jump start in the kingdom of heaven coming alive in your life. 
All of this, I feel like the Hebrew writer says at the very beginning of the book. It's like he tells the whole story right away. He says, in the past, God spoke through the prophets to our forefathers during various times in all kinds of ways. But in these days, God has spoken through the Son, under whom He has placed all things and through whom the universe has been created. Here's the powerful piece. It says that the Son is the radiance of the glory of the Father and is the perfect representation of God's being. By His words, powerful words, all things are sustained. Do you want to know what God looks like? You want access to God? Let me introduce you to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect representation of God, the radiance of God's glory. So what does that mean for us? It means we're to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so, I'm going to my last, inter- my last uh, example of this. There was a person who put together what I think is one of the most eloquent explanations of Christ and love. You've heard it before. It goes like this. If I spoke so eloquently, as eloquent as any person, as any angel, but I don't have love, people just hear me as a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And I have the kind of faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love. I'm nothing. If I give all I have to take care of the poor, if I give my body over to the hardest of causes so that I might boast, but I don't have love, I don't gain a thing. You see, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. It doesn't seek out another person's harm, and it's also not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no account of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but instead delights in the truth. Love always protects always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love does not fail. If there are prophecies, they'll come to an end. If there are languages or speaking in tongues, eventually they'll go silent. If there's knowledge, it'll eventually pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is complete comes, all the other passes away. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I reasoned like a child, I thought like a child, but when I grew up, 
I put childish ways behind me. I see through a glass darkly, but I want to tell you, it's coming a time when I will see face to face. I realize I know in part, but there's coming a time when I will know even as I am known. These three things, amazing things abide, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. An incredibly beautiful passage. But I want to tell you, when we try and use an example for something like patience, we don't say, oh, and he has the patience of Corinthians chapter 13. I've never heard that. But over and over again, I've heard, oh, he has the patience of Job. So my question is, what would it be like if I could say, oh, she has the trust of Job, the wisdom of John, the incredible hope of Alex, the joy, the simplicity of Victoria. That's what it means to follow Jesus, is that people might see in you a window of the kingdom and attach this notion of God's kingdom to something that's so tangible that when they see it, they recognize it as part of the fabric of how God created them. The reconciliation nature of Tyler. The grace-filled perspective of Paul. The compassion of Melissa. The anticipation of Brad. I love this place because I can do that. It's not a problem to keep listing names and saying what incredible components of this wonderful followership of Christ looks like. So I want to challenge you. When you come to the table of grace, recognize that it is a call first and foremost, to be recipient of what Christ has done for us, to have access. And in the midst of having access, to say, oh Lord, how then do I live so that it's not simply words on a page, things that are statements that are made, it's not the law, but it's the fulfillment of grace by how I then live out my faith wherever you've placed me. Stephanie Matthews, Brad Kelly are going to come and lead us to the table of grace. They are colleagues, but this morning they stand before us as our pastors to lead us to this wonderful place together.